Welcome to today's edition of Feet to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. All right, excellent. We are ready to go. It is 10-10. Let's get started. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for the opportunity to study your scriptures. We pray that you would guide us now as we look into your word, all for your glory, and for the benefit of the saints. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, welcome everyone, and I uh, hope you are blessed and enjoyed the study last week in Ephesians 1. We're going to continue the remainder of Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, all of these are available, Lord willing, each week on Saturday following that Sunday. So yesterday I posted on my website, uh, f2tf.org, last week's Ephesians 1 uh, sermon, if you want to share it with anybody or review it or whatever. And now uh, let's continue. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 15, if you could please go there. Ephesians 1, 15. This is called Resurrection Power at Work in Us. Resurrection Power at Work in Us. Everybody hear me okay? Good. This is one of the most marvelous statements on the resurrection in all of Scripture. This passage is one of the most marvelous statements on the resurrection in all of Scripture. Question, what should we be seeking as Christian pilgrims in this life? In light of everything we talked about last week with so great a salvation, what should we be seeking as Christian pilgrims? Here's our thesis. Because of so great a salvation, we ought to know God more and in so doing apprehend our hope, our inheritance, and the resurrection power in us that yields victory over sin. I'll repeat that. Because of so great a salvation, we ought to know God more and in so doing apprehend our hope, our inheritance, and the resurrection power in us that yields victory over sin. Let's read the passage, Ephesians 1.15. Because of this, everything we just read in verses 1 to 14. Because of this, I also, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for all of you, making remembrance upon my prayers, in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom And revelation in the knowledge of him, having been enlightened the eyes of your heart for you to know what is the hope of his calling, what is the richness of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power to us, the ones believing, according to the working of the strength of his might, which he exerted, which he worked, which he accomplished in Christ, having raised him from the dead and having seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every name being named, not only in this age, but also in the one coming. And all things he subjected, he submitted, he subdued under the feet of him, that is Christ, and him he gave as head over all to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one filling all in all. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Few preliminary observations. I apologize for my voice. I don't know what the problem is. It's, I don't know if it's cold. I don't know. I was at a wedding on Saturday, Friday, and then always yelling at a wedding, trying to talk at the table. And I was playing board games in a very loud house last night. I was probably yelling during the board games. So I apologize. I sound hoarse. Let's just move on. I'll do my best. Okay, a few preliminary observations. Number one, 15 to, verse 15 to 21. Remember last week I said 3 to 14 was a sentence in the Greek? Well, based on the grammatical structure, again, 15 to 21 seems to be, again, an entire sentence that Paul wrote. And 22 to 23 can, can be considered another sentence. There is an obsessive fixation in Paul's writing on the resurrection. From moment one of this letter, even until now, and into the next section, Paul is obsessed with the resurrection. Number three, there is a noteworthy compulsion to pray based upon Paul's example. I'm not going to talk about that this morning, but it's noteworthy. It's an exhortation by modeling, and there's a suitable content for prayers. In other words, we ought to pray like Paul, and we ought to pray for this, gratitude for the church and remembrance of the church and prayer for the maturity and the growth of the church particularly in their minds, individually and collectively. We should be praying for that, for the growth of the church. Number four, we can draw out an underlying exhortation to the church that's not explicitly stated, but it's there, to excel still more, where? In both faith in Christ and love for the saints. Excel in faith and love, because these in part precipitated Paul's unceasing urgency of prayer. Having heard of your faith in Christ and your love to all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks and make remembrance of you in all of my prayers, in order that God will give to you. And then he goes on with the verse. You see that? And fifth, the trajectory here in this passage, when you look at it broadly in the book, is actually the good works at the end of Ephesians 2.10. It's all headed there. That's the goal in view. Paul presents salvation in the introduction. Then he says, I want you to mature in knowing God and his powerful Christ, his resurrected Christ, because once you were dead in your sins, but now you are saved by grace, therefore good works, Ephesians 2.10. That's the goal of this section. Okay. So, number one, first thing to get out of this, church, know God more. Know God more. Paul is praying for them to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. So, therefore, we ought to seek a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. And I prefer the, the uh, small s spirit in the translation, uh, a, a spirit of wisdom, small s, meaning a disposition or an attitude, rather than the Holy Spirit. And some of these stickier interpretations and translations out of the Greek, there are great scholars on both sides, and I could get a stack of either one. But I tend towards the one that says small s spirit, a disposition of wisdom and revelation. In other words, Paul is praying for the Christian to have a growing and transformed mind. Did you hear that? After this, he elaborates and he branches out into what such knowledge of God entails, meaning it's several parts. But for now, I want to sit on the idea of knowing God. Our minds must necessarily go right to this verse, Romans 12, 1 to 2. I've told you so many times in this church to inscribe it on your heart. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship or reasonable worship. 
It actually is the same root word in the Greek as logic. It's your, it's your reasonable act of worship, your spiritual, logical, reasonable worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We are in a battle for the mind. It is everywhere in Scripture. This is where the spiritual battle resides. Examples, wicked wicked strongholds, what Paul calls arguments and lofty opinions that are set up against the knowledge of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10. Lofty opinions, arguments. We are set against the ruler of the spirit of the air, Ephesians 2. Spirit of the air, that's the, uh, the Germans called it the zeitgeist, the milieu, the spirit of the age, the culture's disposition. All of that resides in the mind. Ephesians 2, 3, wicked men follow the will of the flesh and of their minds. And we see also in the Bible the importance of knowledge. Colossians 1, 9, Paul prays there for wisdom and spiritual understanding for the church. Philippians 1, 9, he prays for the church for knowledge and all insight. Ephesians 3, 18, that they would know Christ's love. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Citing uh, P.T. O'Brien, which sounds smart, but I stole the book from Pastor Randy. Thank you. And I will have to give uh, proper courtesy to Pastor Randy, whose library I rated, and also the text, because I'm not this smart. Um, But P.T. O'Brien suggests that Paul was presenting the knowledge of God in Christ in contrast to the faulty mysticism of Asia Minor. If you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 19, all the magic art, art, uh, magic arts, and then all the books that they burned in a giant bonfire during that revival, that's Acts 19. And Ephesus also housed the Temple of Artemis. So mystical pagan knowledge was very popular, and Paul's pitting the knowledge of God and Christ against that. They had an infatuation with dark power versus the power of God in Christ. Now, we know that the knowledge of God in Christ is the fountainhead of all knowledge. All knowledge, not just theological. And to the extent that we drift from this biblical revelation, the Bible, which reorients and recalibrates our minds, right? The Bible recalibrates and reorients our thinking along the truth. To the extent that we drift from it, to that extent we as creatures drift into madness, into mental dysfunction, into mental misfiring. That's what happens when you drift from Scripture. And certainly is not the Western mind now nothing short of degenerate. I want to make this point and sit on it. Two to three hundred years since the mid-18th century, mid-1700s, two to three hundred years of old earth geology, evolution, subjective philosophies, the assault on the veracity of Scripture, and here we are in the 21st century. Men are women. That's what they tell us. Children cannot read or think. We succumb to inane speculations. People don't read books and laugh about it. And we are prisoners all to ignorance and insanity. This is the modern man in the West. We came from monkeys, and the earth is melting. Oh, and here, take this injection and don't ask questions. And I'm not getting into anybody's opinion on that. I'm just saying, this is the Western man. This is how he processes. It's dysfunctional. We are at a critical state, folks, because of the deprivation of the knowledge of God. 
Guard your homes, listen, with the knowledge of God, true knowledge. Men, read books. That wasn't a descriptive statement. That was an imperative. Men, go read books and teach your children. Teach them the knowledge of God. Well, how can we know God more? MacArthur points out here that we aren't praying for more of God, for more of the Spirit, for more revelation, more information, more grace and peace and love. We're not praying for more of that. That's bad Bible. Paul says that God might give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is quoting MacArthur. It is tragic that many believers become entangled in a quest for something more in the Christian life, for something special, something extra that the ordinary Christian life does not possess. They talk of getting more of Jesus Christ, more of the Holy Spirit, more power, more blessings, a higher life, a deeper life, as if the resources of God were divinely doled out one at a time or unlocked by some spiritual combination that only an initiated few can know. I need, that's, not, that's not what Paul's saying. Indeed, today, it is very chic to emotionally, passionately plead for more of God. You guys have heard things like this in worship services, prayer meetings. Pour down your spirit. We invite you here. Give me more of you. Emotional pleas that appeal, emotional pleas that appeal to our carnal impulse by the experience of it and to which women are noticeably susceptible. This kind of experiential Christianity preys on them, but on all of us. And it is particular as well to more charismatic forms of Christianity like Pentecostalism. I need a fresh voice, a new revelation. You've heard this, right? That's not at all what Paul is saying here. This all distracts from the fact of the matter and Paul's intent, which I said was aimed at Ephesians 2.10, obedience, obedience. You can spend all this time pleading for more and so maintain this pretense of an impassioned, authentic religion I just, I need more of Jesus. And yet you avoid the actual doing altogether, which is all too common in our churches today. The problem is not having God and his blessings and his fullness. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, it is apprehending, it's appropriating this fullness in this life. It's knowing and applying, understanding and submitting to what we already have from God in Christ. That's Paul's prayer. Not that you get more of it, that you come to know what you already have. In short, the transformed life proceeding from the transformed mind. That is the upward call. That's the challenge. That's the mission. Not more of Christ, you have it, but a transformed life that proceeds from a transformed mind. Colossians 2. To bolster our understanding that we don't need more of God, I want to remember this, Colossians 2. For in Christ, a familiar verse, dwells all the fullness, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you, church, are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Did you hear that? You are already complete. Stop this emotional stuff of like more of God. You have it all. Are you doing it? Are you knowing and doing MacArthur again, the Christian's primary need is for wisdom and obedience to appropriate the abundance of blessings. Our problem is not lack of blessings, but lack of insight and wisdom to understand and use those blessings properly and faithfully. And I would also add to that quote, it's a lack of willingness. In other words, we are disobedient 
And Paul is essentially praying for obedient minds. I want your minds to know what you have in Christ, parenthetical, implicitly stated, so that you can obey, so that you can be transformed. So back to how to know God more. I still haven't answered that. Here's the answer. How do I know God more? Read, study the word. Study the word. As I said, it's the fountainhead of all knowledge. Read your Bible and rightly orient your mind around the truths contained in it. Let your mind be transformed. Do what the word says. This is knowing God more. This is conformity to Christ, to which you were appointed as the goal of your salvation. Romans 8, 29. You were appointed and elected. Everything we talked about last week. Remember that on election? Everything we talked about last week. You were appointed and elected in this salvation for the purpose, Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the Son. That's why we want to know God more. We have it all. We want to be conformed to Christ. All right, so know God more, church. Number two we get from this is no salvation's implications. So Paul addresses, I'll say that again, no salvation's implications. Paul addresses three aspects of growing in the knowledge of God. I pray that God might give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having been enlightened the eyes of your heart, for you to know... For you to know, and then he gives us three aspects of growing in the knowledge of God. Being so enlightened means to know even more. When when your eyes of your heart are so enlightened, you know even more three things. One, our hope. Two, our inheritance. And three, the power in us. Did you catch that? He says, to know what is the hope of his calling, the richness of the glory of his inheritance in the saints... And what is the surpassing greatness of his power in us, the ones believing? And then he goes on. So let's take one each at a time. The hope of his calling is rather straightforward in light of what we just learned in verses 3 to 14 last week. We are called, here's the hope of his calling, we are called to be his holy possession, the church. In Greek, and Pastor Randy said this many times from the pulpit, in Greek the word for church is ekklesia. It means called out, and it's from two parts, out, the prefix out, ek, and kaleo is the verb I call. We are called out. We are called out as God's what? As God's possession. And this is very hopeful, listen, because God has marked us for now and for eternity as his own. He's called you out. He's plucked you out. You're the church. Exodus 19.5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you, Israel, will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you are to speak to the Israelites. Now to the church, now that's you, because Christ has, in fact, kept and sealed the new covenant, has he not? He has fulfilled the covenant. In fact, he has guaranteed it for us. And hope is only worth about as much as whatever it is for which you are hoping. Let me say that hope is only worth as much as the thing that you're hoping in. It rests on the firmness of the thing hoped for, which in the case of Christ does not disappoint because Christ is sufficient. Hebrews 6, 18. We know our hope is secure. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary, the deep part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. In other words, listen, let me say it simply. You guys with me? I'm losing you. 
Stay with me. It's a lot, it's, it's a lot of verses in one week. I get that. Stay with me, okay? Let me, let me translate that in simpler term, terms. God has sworn. He has sworn on his own name and made a blood oath. You are mine. What a great calling. You are mine. Christ kept the covenant for you. You're mine forever. That is very hopeful, and that's every reason to persevere. So that is the hope of his calling. Number two, we see the richness of his inheritance. The richness. Indeed, it's the richness of his glorious inheritance. There's a compound emphasis in Paul's grammar. It's the richness of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He keeps building it up. Now, we don't know it exactly what the inheritance is, but we have glimpses of the inheritance in Scripture. However, without, even without the detail, what's the inheritance exactly in the kingdom? Literally, what is it? Without those details, it goes back to what I ended with last week, if you remember from uh, first, uh, I think it's 1 Timothy 6, yeah, 1 Timothy 6, 19, where we, in that kingdom, we will take hold of the life that is truly life. There must be no doubt, Christian, that it will be glorious. Whatever. We will take hold of the life that is tr- that's truly alive, truly living forever in the kingdom. Whatever that inheritance is, it's glorious. And your doubting, Christian, regarding the enjoyment and the happiness and the pleasure and the gratification of your future inheritance is weakening your faith. Do you realize that? When you doubt your inheritance, it weakens your faith. And the inheritance is certainly an appropriate motivating factor, and it is an issue of faith. Do we really believe enough in the coming, the richness of his glorious inheritance to invest more and obey more? See, again, it's not asking for a bigger inheritance or more of Christ. We're guaranteed we're complete in Christ. We have a guaranteed inheritance. Do you have the faith to believe that that inheritance is coming and that it's altogether great and glorious? And you're going to invest everything to gain that, to have that, to live for that, the richness of that inheritance. So the hope of his calling, number two, the richness of his glorious inheritance, and number three, knowing this of God, his his wisdom, remember Paul's explaining, to grow in wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him. So what are are the aspects of the knowledge of him? It's the hope of his calling, it's the uh, richness of his glorious inheritance, and now it's the power, the surpassing greatness of his power. The surpassing greatness of his power. This is now where the passage takes a swift and steep ascendancy. The passage takes a swift ascendancy because the outworking and unraveling of God's power in Christ, the thorough description of it, is the theme of the next five verses. It's all about the outworking of what is this power. And it is overwhelming, to say the least, the next five verses. And I can't oversell it because it's Bible. There is again in this section a compound description in Paul's grammar with a layer of synonyms for emphasis. So he says, the surpassing greatness of his power. And I do like the King James Version. It's a little little formal and uh, stuffy, but I like it. I like it. It's very literal. The surpassing greatness of his power to usward, his power to usward, right to us, the ones who are believing according to, now here's this compound structure, according to the working, 
or the energy. It's actually the original word is energia, so that's where we get our word energy, and that's the word in the Greek. According to the working or the energy of the strength of his might, which he worked, now it's a verbal form of energia, energeo, same thing, energy, which he worked or which he energized or he exerted or he wrought or he accomplished in Christ. I'll say it again. It is the working of the strength of his might, which he worked or exerted or energized in Christ when, having raised him from the dead and having seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all. It's so good to read the poetic way with which Paul describes what God did on Resurrection Sunday. Do you realize the exertion of strength in the resurrection? Now, you've heard me say it plenty of times before, dear church. But listen again, this is the most unattainable accomplishment in all of creation and existence. Tune in with me right now. Listen, you have got to see the weight of this in order to apprehend the power toward us who believe about which Paul is speaking. You you need to see the weight of death and the weight of what happened at the tomb. I don't care what we are talking about. Supernovas, galaxies collapsing, earthquakes, miracles, God parting the sea, flooding the earth, nothing compares to this. This is an entirely different category than interrupting nature. The final authority in this present world and universe is death. It is irreversible. It is bondage, death is bondage, under which the entire universe is bound, most of all men, Hebrews 2. It is the highest authoritative force, more than gravity, more than anything in the universe, death. Entropy you've heard of, right? The law of decay, a gradual decline into disorder. That's going on in the universe as we speak. It is a dead and dying universe, and you are all dead and dying, and there is no escape. That is the ruling authority in the universe. Let that ring in your minds and your ears for a moment. Furthermore, whoever heard of this? A dead man walking. Hence, why every Paul, everywhere that Paul went in Acts... They would all listen to Paul and Peter until they got to what? The resurrection. Acts 17, all the Greek philosophers laughed at him. They were listening up to that point, but they laughed. Acts 26, King Agrippa and Festus, Paul, you're insane, when he got to the resurrection. It doesn't even, the resurrection does not even come into the arena of reasonability in our universe. Okay, some of you might say, well, the miracles of God, raising the dead in the Old and New Testament are comparable. What's so big here? But no, they're not. Even then, God did it to someone else, right? No one got himself up. It's an absurd notion that a dead person gets himself up. And after some time, all of those people that God rose, either in the Old and New Testament, all of them died again anyway. Did they not? Yet here in the resurrection, we see something altogether remarkable, unthinkable, earth-shattering, universe-shattering. What happened that day at that tomb on a quiet morning, unbeknownst to anyone but the Father who loved his beloved Son, when the universe paused and heaven thundered and the entire angelic host gasped, And God ripped that stone away and tore back that dreadful dark veil of death 
once and for all, this is the greatest work of power in the universe, that a dead man got himself up, that he woke himself up, roused himself, and reversed his own death. Thank you, Jesus, for walking out of the tomb. I ask again, has anyone ever heard of this? Has anyone seen this or conceived of this? Do you see that this is the most striking, most impossible thing to happen in all of the universe? Christ has defied death. Christ alone, indeed, has the power of an indestructible life. You said that 10 months ago on Good Friday. I know I did. And I'll keep saying it. Because it's an incredible proposition and possibly the central one of all of Scripture. The Christ alone has the power of an indestructible life. Hebrews 7. Jesus has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Do you realize Christianity is far beyond men in stuffy suits sitting in a formal church building and pastors pounding pulpits? Christianity is far beyond that. That this is not ultimately what you are dealing with when you consider Christianity, pulpits and preachers and churches. Do you realize it does not matter what you think about any of this? Because Christ is indestructible. And that is who you are dealing with. And when you are dust and all the church walls are melted away and the preachers you found to be a nuisance are no longer there to give you a lecture or a sermon and man's vain philosophies have all evaporated like meaningless vapor, you will be left all alone staring into the face of a terrible and indestructible God. And he will conquer you because he alone triumphs. Will he conquer you as savior king or as wrathful judge? You may speculate that this is all optional, but it doesn't matter what you speculate. Because one day you'll be dead. And he is not dead. We will all be dead and he is not dead. And you will realize how not optional this is when your dead self is ushered before him and you are standing in front of one who is entirely alive. When you in your deadness, a wretched soul, see his frightening presence very much alive, you will soon find out that Jesus is not optional. He's not, Jesus is not a choice you make. He is an indestructible God to whom you will answer. Listen, guys. The resurrection is frightening terror, and it is conquering victory all at once. I want you to see that. And I preached a portion to this, of this message to the youth group about two years ago. And I put in the notes, are you trying to scare us? And my answer was, yes. I want you to see what Paul's seeing in the text. It's frightening terror, but it's conquering victory all at once. The power toward us who believe is the power of an indestructible life. That is Christ who conquers death and he wins. That's the power toward us. And I did speak a little bit erroneously a few moments ago. There is something stronger than death. I wonder if any of your minds went there. Solomon, Song of Solomon 8.6. Place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm, for love 
is as strong as death. And its jealousy unyielding as the grave. Love burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. (laughs) And many waters cannot quench love, and rivers cannot sweep it away. Guys, the love of God in Christ is the only thing stronger than death. And he said that about you. You'll be like a seal on my my heart, and I will gain you, and I will have you forever. That'd be death. Now then, let's go on to asserting this power at work in us, because that's Paul's point here. So one, know God more. Number two, understand the power at work in us, resurrection power. And number three, assert resurrection power over sin. You guys with me? Come on, this is the big finish. Stay with me. Come on. All right, here we go. Assert resurrection power over sin. What does resurrection power entail? There are two things in view in this passage in the concluding five verses as he outworks resurrection power. Number one, we see two things. What I already just said, the resurrection, which we just described, is universe-shattering, conquering death. We've got that. But it doesn't stop there. Another facet of Christ's ministry that is often overlooked and equally vital, equally vital, and I did not come up with this. I'm not smart. I heard this from sermons, and I'm like, wow, I've overlooked that is the ascension, the resurrection and the ascension. We lament that Christ left. The disciples lamented that he left, but we're better off for his leaving for two reasons. One, his going gave us the Holy Spirit, John 16 and Acts 1, to dwell within us, our deposit guarantee. Okay, Christ was a man. He couldn't physically climb in our heart. His going gave us the Holy Spirit to now live in us. The Spirit of Christ lives in us. So that's good. And the other thing is, his going, and this is the point of Paul now, is the assumption of his rightful authority as ruler. It is the commencement of his reign, the ascension. God, having raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heaven. So let's let's look at aspects of that seating at his right hand. First, the posture. Also not me. Maybe as I get older and more experienced, I won't feel the need to say that anymore. But I I just really don't want to sound smart. I steal books from the other pastors, and then you read good stuff. And some of the stuff, you're like, wow. And I don't want you to be like, wow. Serge, that was insightful. Not me. Got it from somebody else. Okay. P.T. O'Brien. The first thing to notice is his posture. I never thought of that. The son sits in God's presence. No one else does. They either stand or they fall in worship. No one sits in God's presence, but the son does. I think that's, that shows his power. That's wonderful. Number two, next, over whom does the son reign? Now, it's a reference here, the submission of all things under his feet, to Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says this, you have him rule over the works of your hands. You've put everything under his feet. Psalm 110 says this, future telling towards the son. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, speaking of the Son, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. That's your ascended Savior. So 
What's submitted under Christ's feet, based on the Old Testament references, is his enemies, demonic powers, earthly rulers. Those are the rulers and authorities and dominions that we read about. And even also the angels, because Paul goes on to say any name being named, any name that you can name, he's Lord over all. Next we see this. There's an already not yet eschatological sense here as well. Christ is far above in this age, it says. He's far above in this age and in the age to come. So his current reign is happening now, hence the importance of the ascension he's reigning. But it will be finally consummated at his second coming. And this, by the way, is the thinking behind the amillennial view, if you've heard of that, that Christ is certainly reigning right now in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. It's already done. We're in the millennium. He's reigning. He's king. The kingdom's happening now. But even if you aren't amillennial, can you still let this sink in that you have an active, listen, physically alive. Remember, he didn't change form. He's resurrected. He's alive. Physically alive king ruling on the throne right now. All things are subjected and submitted to his feet. So understand the scope of his reign. O'Brien says this, the whole hierarchy of authorities, including death, is subject to the risen and exalted Lord. Every conceivable power is encompassed within the mighty reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, it says that he is given as head to the church. He's our leader and captain. It is because, this is John Stott who says this, it is because of Christ's resurrection from the dead and enthronement over the powers of evil that he has been given headship over the church. Listen, Christians, Christ's presence is a continual advocacy before God on our behalf. His reigning is continually on our behalf. Here's a question. Do the nations even have any other king or head worthy to stand before our dread warrior, the Lord? He's there right now reigning. Man, God in the flesh, resurrected, forever glorified body, reigning. Do they have anyone to stand up to him? Paul asks in Corinthians, where is the debater and the scholar of the age? I ask also, where is the king of this age? The kings of these other religions. Think about that. Who is their head and captain? Who is the head, ask yourself this, of postmodernism? Where is he? Whoever it is, he's dead. And so with every other. Where is their dread warrior? They have no living king. Ours is reigning. He as the head makes us the body as well in the illustration. You, say Paul, you see Paul says that. We're the church's body. The church is the fullness of him, it says in verse 23. Circling back to the original point that we made, that we have everything, all fullness in Christ. We are filled with Christ, having all we need. And he is the one, it says, filling all in all. Now, the Greek there is really difficult, and it's very debated. And I, it's just a very, it's a very poetic phrase, the end of that verse. Have you ever read that? And you're like, what does that mean, filling all in all? Good, take a ticket and get in line. Okay, Greek scholars are arguing about what that means. But the best rendering is just that he is filling all in all. It's a poetic summation of his all-encompassing, enveloping, universal dominion. Christ completely fills everything. Now, we're running out of time, so let me do this part rather quickly. So what are the implications? What is all this towards the ones believing? This resurrection power. Well, for starters, we should submit and obey 
because why would we oppose so mighty a king, resurrected, ascended, seated, and reigning? But it's also, I want to emphasize this, it's all out of love for you. Remember I said this last week, I'll say it again. This section of Ephesians is not so much imperatival, like command, like do this, but it's inspirational. Look at so great a salvation. Uh, look, at, look at the richness of your glorious inheritance in Christ, and look at the hope of his calling, and look at the power of his resurrection exerted in Christ when he raised him and seated him. Submit and obey. You see the inspiration? Why would you not? So that's one application, guaranteed victory. Here's the other thing. Stop believing the lie that certain sin or sinful situations are irreversible, hopeless, unconquerable, inevitable, and that Scripture and Christ have no bearing on this situation, my unique, devastating situation. Did you hear that? It's unfortunate that we run out of time so quickly. Because this is very important. So I'll hit it. Maybe we'll address it a little bit next week if we have time. But stay with me and pay attention. All we just described in the resurrection and the ascension, Paul's point here now is, know all of this, and that is the power of God at work in you. Your sin, your sinful situation, your devastation is not hopeless. Our age not only excuses sin, but leaves Christians hopeless by failing to believe and know and trust and preach the sufficiency of Christ and his word. It's a low view of Christ and the gospel and the resurrection. Christ's ministry destroyed the works of the devil, didn't he? 1 John 3.8. We are not under the control of sin. We can beat it, 1 John 3.9. We are under the control of the resurrecting spirit, and sin will not have dominion, Romans 6. Furthermore, we learn this in Philippians, it is God who wills in us to act and live according to his good purpose. Death, death can't thwart Christ. Here's, the, here's what I'm trying to make, a summation. If death, the most powerful thing in the universe, could not thwart Christ and he beat it, he can beat your sin. If he can raise himself from the dead, he can deal with your sin. You're not dead yet. It's a far greater thing, an exertion of power, to get him out of that tomb, to get himself out of the tomb. It's a far greater exertion of power to give life to your dead body for your own resurrection. In this life, you can have conquering, victorious power over sin. We have all we need in Christ. Now, if you're like, I don't understand why you're camping out on this, because it's a common thing. Let me give you two examples. We have a Christian culture that accepts resigning ourselves to certain sins. This is the way it is. I can't beat it. It's too bad. We wallow in self-pity, frustration, defeat. Examples would be addictions, pornography, rage and bad temper, lust, worrying, depression, anxiety, unreconciled relationships, the bitterness of jealousy. Let me give you a more specific example. And I've, count, I've counseled this. Christian brothers and sisters who've suffered with homosexuality. And they're told, and there's books written. There's books written. They, we rename it same-sex attraction. They say, you're just going to have to live that way. Just deal with it. What? When, when God defied everything in the universe and the Son raised himself from the dead, you can't deal with your sin. Excuse me, my computer's making noise. God can't deal with your sin. He can't reverse your sexual impulse, transform you. He can't give you a happy, meaningful life. Yeah, I, I, I tell folks struggling with sexual sin, you can be free from that and have a fruitful marriage and fruitful life. Or marriages where there's conflict and it's like, this will never be resolved. The only choice is divorce. Or just cutting myself off from my spouse. We just have to live together. That's the way it is. See, that is a failure to appropriate resurrection power. That's a failure to apprehend what Paul is saying here to the church. I want you to know 
God and the hope of his calling and the richness of his glorious inheritance and the power of the resurrection that he exerted in Christ that's now at work in you. And guys, I'm not teaching sinless perfection, not at all. I'm teaching exactly what Pastor Randy talked about in the sermon today, that we are focused on the upward call of God in Christ, and we press on knowing that resurrection power is in us, and we don't resign ourselves to saying, this is hopeless. No, it is not, because the tomb is empty. Amen? It is not hopeless. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in the Word. We thank you for the wonderful teaching from Scripture. And the application was so small at the end, but that's okay because the Spirit will work that application in the hearts and lives of these brothers and sisters. The goal is to bring out the text and let them gaze on it and see what are the Scriptures saying about the glories of Christ. And we thank you that you have done this that you have raised yourself up, that the Father has raised the Son in the power of the Spirit, and because you have conquered death, you can conquer sin in our lives. Lord, help us to know the hope of your calling, the rich inheritance we have in Christ, and the power of Christ in us that you exerted in him when you raised him and seated him and gave him dominion over all the universe. We love you and we give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.